This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing and debating the things that come up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is a bit of light catch-up, followed by two main items of news, one chosen by Eugene and one chosen by myself. We pick our topics from our twice a week Making Briefing newsletter, which is filled with current news, interesting links, and analysis. On Making It Up, we talk through various topics that have piqued our interest over the past week and speak to their importance and relevance within creative culture. Remember in the last episode when you mentioned that you think, we were talking about the midterm primaries coming up. And you said you think that eventually voting is going to move to phones. And then I said, no way in hell. Yeah. And And then later that night or the next morning, you... You send know, a link over. Yeah. But that link wasn't even new. Well, that I link, didn't know of its existence. I kind of knew about it, but I also wasn't sure how well known it was or what phases of development. Okay, explain the article. I basically is just like an opportunity for people to utilize their mobile phone to vote. And obviously the challenge is how do you identify people and make sure it's not someone spoofing you or like someone that's hacked you. But what's interesting is that it's not a hypothetical thing. It's Oh, it's a real thing. Okay. But what was interesting to me wasn't that this was a hypothetical thing that's possible, but that West Virginia is really intending to roll it out. And they started it in March 2018. Yeah. It didn't mention anything about people in the armed forces had access to it first. Yes. yes it was that. originally for overseas personnel to vote, which makes sense. And then now it's being applied to local What's the voters. underlying technology behind that, Cherise? You're just setting me up so that you can feel good about being right. No, I don't. Blockchain. Yeah, let's move on. I don't. I I don't want people to think this is some wannabe like some gloating some wannabe crypto blockchain culture podcast because it's not. (laughs) I mean, someone already called you out for mentioning blockchain in the briefing regularly. You know why? You know why I add it? We can move on. You know why I add it? I do add it because I think that it's. An interesting space. Like I think the two things that we do talk about are cannabis and blockchain slash crypto stuff. And they're just nascent slash growing emerging industries. You so, mean two of the things that we talk about that are not necessarily within creative culture that other people might not lump into creative culture? I would say they're generally like I, I think if but like why do you ident- right, why would you pull out those two things to highlight? Well, I would say the third one we also talk a lot about is AI. Yeah, we, I was going to mention that. We so talk a lot about I, AI I would say too. that in general, they are like industries that aren't mainstream and we generally... Becoming more mainstream. Yeah, I think it's just good to have a little bit of a drip feed type of educational approach to it versus like tomorrow you wake up and the whole world is this and that and like you're not aware of it. Yeah, blindsided. So I don't know. That's my That's my two cents on why I, I feel it's important to have it in there to contextualize and to bring instances where it's hopefully valid to the make and reader. The blockchain voting app is very interesting to me because that regardless of what the technology is behind it, putting voting into um, a non-physical space could, could totally change the landscape. Why do you think people don't vote right now? Do you think it's well, one merely thing is also of... that it's difficult to vote for a myriad of reasons. Oh. Like the United States has made it difficult for certain. Well, one of the main things is that the day you vote is not even a holiday. 
You don't oh, get the day off to go vote. Got it. Yeah, but that's interesting. This, this is also not a politics podcast. I just feel it's out so of... So we don't have yeah. to dive into it. I feel it's out of convenience, like the more convenient something is. Yeah, of course. One thing I did want to talk about was how I'm currently working with an outside contributor to put together his first story for us. And it's been really interesting because I didn't think of myself as... I still don't see myself as some kind of expert editor, producer. But in this process, I undeniably know more than this person. And that is eye-opening to me. I have two two points of view on it. I think one, the ability to teach reinforces what you know, right? That's really important. So sometimes if someone explains something to you, I think a good representation of how well you know it is how do you teach someone else about it? He actually asked some really good questions I never thought about in articulate ways, like in ways I was verbalizing to myself. One of them was, how do you make your interview subject feel comfortable? Mm -hmm. And that is something I do, but not something that I have ever spelled out to myself. Like, these are the things that you should do until I had to tell him what to consider. I think the other part too is that in a very, I always want to use the word amorphous, the process that we use to create something can be different with a similar or different outcome, right? Yeah. So that makes it almost categorically difficult to be like, hey, you know what? You as a producer, editor is better than that person. Your process is better or worse. I said that to him too in similar language. I said, you know, well, this is how I do it. This is how I process. I'm curious what they do it in journalism school. I mean, I didn't either. Well, I learned how to write. But I'm Actually, also curious not... how it would differ. Sorry, I got to walk that back. I did, in fact, get a minor in journalism. It's not the same as going what? to J school, but I did. And now that I think back on my own resume uh, there for a second, I did. I got Theoretically, a... you're the most qualified I'm making now. Does that make me the most qualified? Yeah. I mean, I got a BA in writing, so I guess so. Your Bachelor of Arts is in writing? Can we... Okay, I would really prefer if we cut this entire thing because it just sounds like I'm boasting about myself, but I got a BFA in communication design. And at the same time, I got a BA in writing. So you got a double major. Yeah, I did a double. No, I did a double degree. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah, let's not include this. You're smart. I'm going to go. You're smart, Charisse. I'm going to go pursue my third degree. You're one of those people that just collects degrees. You're like um, college dropout, the guy that has like a ton of degrees. I think think this is going to be my last degree. Anyway, it's not the point at all. I did one thing that I spoke about with this person is how Eugene does things differently from me. Like I explained the process of going through the audio after you've recorded it and writing around it. Like every, each of us does that differently. And yeah. neither way is necessarily better or worse. It's yeah. just that everybody has their own way. But I feel like that's actually was not very helpful for him. What you need to do, and this is what I was thinking as you said that, and it's also a thought I had earlier today is that Building out systems are important merely as a reference point so that someone that doesn't know how to do something has somewhere to start. Yeah. So once they get comfortable with the system and they realize this is not advantageous to how I work, then they can change it. Yeah. It's hard because you want to give them enough to get going, but you also don't want to be like, this is the law. Like I, it has to be yeah, one, two, three. I used to be like that, to be honest. I used Which to way? feel as though like, the law, like this is uh, the way you have to do it. Now I recognize that I just think differently than everyone else in the room. 
potentially. Mm. Like everyone thinks differently. Mm. So you just need to let them have a defined sort of route to take. But if they want to deviate after they know where they need to go, then it's up for them. So for example, making this up, but like, let's say I might take a route to work that is super boring, but the fastest one, but you want to take your time and, and enjoy your coffee and it's it's more colorful or whatever, then that's totally on you too. Yeah. Right. And I, at the end of the day, we're not really a content farm. So we do allow people to kind of let things breathe and marinate. Yeah. I want to, I think it, I try to explain that we give enough room for you to explore how you want to write and produce a story. But I also want to be sure that I'm giving you enough direction so that you don't feel like I'm tossing you in the ocean without a life jacket. I'm actually pretty psyched about the sights and sounds coming out the end of this week. Why is that? Do you remember? Because so you did the interview with him, with Chris Takana, the photographer that we're featuring. Do you remember the stories that he told you? I mean, roughly, yeah. I remember... The one, my favorite is the one where he's in Russia seeing the guy diving. Yeah. Because the story is very personal. It's like about his own change between one year and the next. And he links it to this image. And not everyone has something like that to say about their photos. No, Chris is super cool, man. Like hanging out with him and getting his point of view was awesome. Like I think he just has a very sort of like defined point of view on the world. Yeah, he's he's clearly You've thought never met him before. quite a lot. I've not met him before. Yeah, you get he's clearly thought quite a lot. Like yeah. I was helping cut some of the audio and each of the ones he picked were deeper than the moment that he shot it. There were photos that he that had left something, like some impression on him. Oh, there's one thing I want to talk about. You remember okay. the one the one thing before we started recording, I kind of shared that link with you about the controversy over the Nike balaclava thing. Ah, uh, yes. I was so if you're not familiar, this is just a quick aside. It's not really worth, you know, deeper analysis. So the point of contention is that there's this piece from the Nike Times Matthew Williams collection, which came out, I think last month or whatever, it came out very recently. And it's a piece that's been in the collection from the beginning, I think. It's basically like a tactical looking balaclava. And the whole collection around Matthew Williams and Nike is around data informed design. So all the sportswear, all the pieces have some sort of um, data touch point that informed how they designed it. I kind of repeated myself, but it, I don't know what the exact sort of data point behind this balaclava is. But one of the reasons why I came under fire was because within London, apparently there's a lot of gang violence that associates with balaclavas and people in London were kind of all up in arms and saying that they were glorifying and or profiting off this type of look. I thought it was interesting because contextually, for me personally, growing up, it like we wore balaclavas to school for recess when you're playing out in a cold Canadian like winter, right? Mm. It's not it's not anything beyond me. But the thing I think that linked the two was a balaclava and the model. It was like a black model. But I was thinking about this and isn't it worse that the detractors immediately think of it as racial stereotyping because of the fact that it's a black model? Yeah, that's the thing. That's I, What I doesn't it, it show? You can totally say that I'm wrong. But doesn't it show Nike being open-minded to 
using different models in this context or like just the fact that they didn't well, link the fact it with game violence? Another, there's another model, like a girl that's wearing it as well. So I think it's more of a stretch and you're trying to like create this logical leap that this is what they're trying to. This is why when we were associate. off camera, I was asking you so much about what a balaclava is used for. And you mentioning that you actually used to wear one as a kid is helpful. So the item itself is not like, let's make this it's apparel cool. item with its relations I mean, to it's gang aesthetically violence. aesthetically cool, I guess. But it's functional too. Functional and depends how you look at it. It could be functional in the sense of keeping you warm, but also functional to hide your identity when you go commit a crime. I mean, like functional as a Nike product. Oh, I mean... Like a beanie is a functional item. That's what I, I'm trying to say. I mean, if you have long hair, I could see it just kind of keeping it all in. But in general, the, I found it really interesting. It's kind of like the social justice warriors coming out and like not really understanding the context. Um, the source I found it from High Snob didn't even mention that it was a collaboration that that has an underlying story behind it versus it being like some random Nike designer went and did this. I just, I just thought it was interesting. I, I think that contextually I can understand why someone can be up in arms, but on that same note, then what do you really do? Because it's the adoption of this type of garment, this type of best example. If Doc Martens are a counterculture icon and skinheads wear them, does that make... Doc Martin's the yeah, enemy. Right. And I don't I don't know, man. It's not so one person on Twitter drew a connecting line between the Puma drug house. Do you remember that? That one, one was way worse. Yeah, that one's way worse, right? Because okay, like let's say Nike for give, whatever. Give people reason, the context oh, on the sorry. on the drug house. Puma threw a party inspired by council estate drug dealing and this was really transparently drawing on that theme. It was called House of Hustle. And there were business cards saying, turn on the trap line. And you were sent a burner phone as part of the invite. Like it was very clear the inspiration That's for their party. For sure. you know? And so a lot of people like mentioned to Puma, like came out saying like, this is not okay. You are definitely profiting off of glamorizing yeah. this um, subculture, this event. Not even subcultural, but that like things going on, um, things that are negative that are going on. Whereas, okay, Nike, it's called like the MMW balaclava, right? They didn't call it the MMW gang violence balaclava. Yeah. So I definitely think it's a stretch. And it's black because the entire collection is black. I think, yeah, both the color, the model. Like if it was model, a pink balaclava, yeah. would anyone be saying anything? Yeah. No, but also Nike wouldn't sell like a pink. Yeah. Anyway. Anyways, we went we, far too we deep went into that. All into like subtopic three here for all this right. episode. Apologies. So let's get going. I, I don't like this title, but I'll, I'll read Why don't it you exactly. Change it then? All right. My topic this week is the radical moral implications of luck in human life. And it's an article that was originally published on Vox by David Roberts. This article is interesting to me because it looks quite profoundly into the trajectory and path our lives take as humans and how things out of our control define a good portion of our lives. So, you know, you and I, anyone else around, they basically have certain things within and outside of their control. Yeah, so, I mean, everyone does. But it also happens at different points in their lives. So, for example, some things you can't pick, 
your socioeconomic upbringing, your religion, your race. There's certain wait, things wait, wait, here. Wait. There are some things that are even more obvious that you can't pick. I can't pick what ethnicity I'm born. Yeah, race, gender. Right. A I can't lot pick of my things. parents. I can't pick mm-hmm. where I'm born. Because when you said religion, I was like, religion very soon, you can make some decisions. You can, but the argument here is that under the age of 18, which is theoretically when you're you become not... become an adult. Yes, realize that you're generally under the control. And I say that not in a negative way, just someone else is helping influence your decisions you make in life and or picking decisions for you or picking, um, you know, how, how things should play out, right? There's some interesting things that, that arose recently, like Kylie Jenner's appearance on the Forbes 60 richest self-made women issue. And yeah. as you know, there's a lot of things at hand there that enabled her to kind of build the empire that she built. Air quote, self-made is something to be contested. This underlying piece focuses on what Roberts, the author, calls, and I quote, one of the enduring themes of our age, socially dominant groups, recipients of myriad unearned advantages, willfully refusing to acknowledge them despite persistent efforts from socially disadvantaged groups. This is not a new theme, of course. It waxes and wanes with circumstance. But after a multi-decade rise in inequality, it has come roaring back to the fore. One thing this quote brings to my mind that's happening in the world nowadays is the way white men are pushing back against being villainized. And they're pushing back because they are feeling like they have to confront this accusation that they are privileged, that they are lucky. Lucky is the way Robert's... um, opens this article. There's other examples that you could go on into, but Roberts compares coming to terms with luck. So knowing that it's something that actually plays a big part in our lives is similar to religious awakening. It means that we acknowledge that luck places an implicit role in our lives. To give an example. So what exactly is religious awakening? Oh, that's what you wanted to go with. Oh, I'm just curious, like that that definition. I didn't look into it because I think I knew what it was, but I think it's something that I wanted to just ask you. Oh, I kind of understood it. I didn't really understand it as religious, like choosing a religion, but that at a time in your life, you as a person have to decide why are humans on earth? Or you either have to choose to not think about those questions or you have to decide for yourself. Where did humans come from? What is Got the it. purpose of us being on earth? Is there a God and is there an afterlife? That was my understanding. Mm-hmm. And in a similar way, he's saying that humans have to reckon with luck at mm-hmm. some point as they grow up. Luck being good luck or bad luck, just the circumstances that you describe that we cannot control. Acknowledging that luck places an implicit role in our lives. So instead of saying, I earned my success, being able to identify, I have my success because of these contributing factors. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So the next question as we run along this this sort of narrative that Roberts did a really good job of setting up, in my opinion. The next question is addressing how luck is perceived and also looking at sort of nature versus nurture and not, in my opinion, as one or the other, but an intersection of both. So I think there's always that it either has to be this or that, but the reality of the situation is that there's a lot of things going on at at play here, right? So the way that Robert sets it up is like, as we come into this world, there's a certain inheritance. There's certain things that children can't control in their upbringing. So that means like everything I mentioned before, race, you know, what, what tax bracket your parents are in, et cetera. Those are all things that you have no control over. So 
Can I jump in? Yeah. And beyond that, also the thing that is wild to me, this is not new to me from this article. I, I knew this already. But what is wild is how formative the early years of your life are. When you don't even remember that and you have no agency, but a lot of child development psychologists, a lot of science shows us that actually how you are treated as a very young child, like from birth to three or four years old, seriously impacts how you react to things as an adult. Yes. This is just like, like stress, I'm just mentioning how you this because it's like mind blowing yeah. to me that yeah. it can affect you in that way. I think that the inability to control your upbringing is something that we probably don't think about all that much. Like as, as we extend into the adult world, right? So... Well, because you like to imagine that you are forming your own path. Yes. We want to think, and maybe this is all sort of like tying back to things we talked about last week about, or in previous discussions about the sort of Western world narrative that anyone can be anything. Mm, yeah. Right? So to continue on, basically, as you grow older, your ability to break free and or kind of level up comes down to control, right? Play to the best of your ability with the cards dealt. I'm sorry to use a cliche there, but I think it's a pretty apt way of putting it. There, There's this psychologist named Daniel Kahneman who says there's two ways of thinking. System one, which is fast, instinctual, and automatic. And system two, which is slower, more deliberate, and emotionally, quote-unquote, cooler. So that means that you're less reactive and you're thinking things through accordingly. So for you to actually override that system, changing your thought process to increase where you are in this point in time, and I guess increase is always up for your own interpretation, but like to take on a new habit, to change your current situation, it involves overriding system one, the fast instinctual one. Did you think of an example of this in your own life? All the time. Can you give an example? So for example... It, this happened just yesterday. Like I, I felt like there were certain things I was doing in my daily routine that I needed to better ingrain, and I needed to be more deliberate in like reinforcing this habit. So like, there's six or seven things I need to do in the morning when I wake up. So it means pound of water, my vitamins, my creatine, my coffee, push-ups. And it's embarrassing I have to put it on there, but brush my teeth. That's the kind of thing that closes it all out. And that's system two. Well, this is an example of system two. Yeah. I would say like just being more deliberate and just making myself... I mean, this is probably not the best example, but the one that's most recent. So mm -hmm. just thinking like, hey, what are things you want to do? And like, how do you achieve that sort of adaptation? I would say anything around habit formation is definitely in system two. I have an example of how my system two is failing me. I mean, I've had this problem basically since university is that I sleep really late. My system one, my instinct as a person that I am is just to sleep very late. And by that, I mean post 1 a.m. This has been ongoing. For my like, average because of my sleep tracker has been after 1 a.m. as well. Great. <laughs> We're in the same sinking boat together. But my argument would be that it's... Why is it such a big deal? But I think it's a bad thing, man. But if it was important enough to you, you would change it. So it just it's just not that important. But I still feel like I should fix it. Like my system two is telling me, you need to fix it. 
it's just not powerful enough. But I, I think that's an example in my life. Yeah. Because this is the one in this case, the, the instinctive automatic behavior. To watch that is to one stay last YouTube tape. Yeah. To one. <laughs> to check my Instagram again. Instagram, is YouTube. To respond to another email. Even if what I'm doing is productive. It's, I think that the logical side of me says, go to bed earlier, wake up earlier, be more rested. And then the instinctive side of me is like, to hell with that. I've been doing this for seven years now. That's me. I guess to, to kind of close out the article and we can kind of just freeform after that. But in closing, denying luck means that outcomes and positive ones are based not on what came before you, but your inherent skill. Those benefiting of luck are the quickest to deny it because it, in many ways, it, it brings into consideration how they achieved what they achieved, right? It detracts from your achievement. Correct. And I really like this last quote. And this is, uh, I think, the last passage. We cannot eliminate luck nor achieve total equality, but it is easily within our grasp to soften luck's harsher effects, to ensure that no one falls too far, that everyone has access to a life of dignity. Before that can happen, though, we must look luck square in the face. Actually, this is one other part that I also found really interesting because it's the reason why, like I left this to my personal thoughts, but it's also mentioned in the piece. Your ability to assess luck is also very much about self-awareness. One part of the piece is about fundamental attribution error. This is one thing that on a personal level, I found really interesting, although it was mentioned in the piece and a lot of it comes down to just self-awareness. And one of the parts is about fundamental attribution error. What Robert says is that when we assess others, and I mean, Roberts and, you know, in general, it's a pretty well-known... Other psychologists. Yeah. When we assess others, we tend to attribute successes to circumstance and failure to character. And when we assess our own lives, it's the opposite. Everyone's relationship with luck is somewhat self-interested and opportunistic. But yeah, that's interesting. So for example, like if I see Sharice being successful, it's like, oh, it wasn't because she worked hard. It's because she got a handout. Yeah, right? And likewise, if I look at my own successes, it's because of my hard work. I think that's a really interesting thing because this is something that I'm constantly aware of too in my eyes. Because I think in general, to have the opportunity to pursue a creative job in many ways, you have to be very fortunate, right? Yeah. Like I think the there's obviously some people that are the starving artists that ended up, you know, coming from nothing. But I think in general, like I always look at myself because my, um, my wife and I talk, to, talk about this a lot and like, oh man, like you had a lot of like opportunity and whatnot. And like, sometimes I used to think, oh, like, what do you mean? Like I grew up in a small town in Canada and then I moved to Hong Kong and then like with no network and I built something. But I think that in general, it's like even the opportunity itself like I was fortunate that my parents were able to like come to Hong Kong once every three years. And I think those are things that now like seeing this, it brings a lot more kind of clarity into how you should approach it. Because I agree, it's like I was never going to think that my achievements were in the past, like to that last point, I think this is the one that that I, I hang my hat on the most because it, it's so valid because I've seen myself to a T, follow that. Well, one thing that this fundamental attribution error reminds me of is our conversations about, we've had several along this line, about Jessica Walsh, about how people, remember the designer, oh, yeah, the yeah. ladies wine design, yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry, I have no filter, about how a lot of people perceive of her success as being related to oh, being attractive like or having just, slept around, yeah. those sort of circumstances. And also that woman you met 
in Singapore mm-hmm. or I forget saying kind of the same thing that yeah. people would perceive of her seceding as related to other circumstances yes. that didn't have to do with her earning that. So like having read this, like, do you, do you think, do you think that in general there is enough of an issue with the way that we perceive luck that it needs more education? This to me is education. I'm learning off of this. But do you think that in general, whether it's your friends around you or the general sort of landscape? I think so. I think also it is damaging that a lot of um, people, like creative people online, talk about things you can do to increase your business as a freelance creative. I, I don't know if you've observed that world, but just like things that you could try and do better in terms of growing your network or invoicing better or whatever it is, pitching people. And I think, not that that's not necessarily helpful, but there's not enough of this complimentary conversation where, hey, we were also lucky. Mm. Because it creates this, it creates this idea, this culture that, oh, you just have to work hard. And if you don't make it as a creative, you're just not working hard enough. Mm -hmm. You aren't doing the right things to secede when the reality is that we we don't know how much of the scale was tipped in these people's yeah. favor. I think ultimately what a greater understanding of this whole concept of just addressing luck means is that you're less quick to judge other people on the negative things that they might do. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. And I don't know if that's right or wrong. And it's funny because like, I think in many ways this helped drive home a point from that book I picked for our community selects the, that whatever the art, art of happiness. Yeah. It was like weird. Cause like, that's kind of what it was. It was like looking at other people and like looking at the way they behave is really maybe down to circumstance. Like though I remember one of the most powerful passages is like, Oh, if a cab driver rips you off in India for five us dollars, right? How should you feel like your initial feelings? Like, oh, I got ripped off. But is there an underlying thing there where it's like, hey, maybe his child's sick or maybe he's, you know, he needs it more than you and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So I, it's kind of always in flux because on the one hand, like it's not good to get ripped off. It doesn't feel good to get ripped off. But at the same time, it's like based on circumstance, maybe someone needs it more than you. Yeah. And I think that's sort of the, the equality of, Outcome For me, the conclusion, not the fundamental attribution error part, but the acknowledging luck and doing our best to soften luck's harsher effects, in Robert's words, has two applications that I think of. One is I want to be responsible in the stories we write to not gloss over the background of our subjects. Because I do think that a lot of the people we speak to and I'm not trying to detract from what they've done, but I think that they have similarly, like you and I, had circumstances in their life that enabled them to do what they're doing. And I'm not saying like that's the main focus of every story. I just want to be conscientious that we don't not acknowledge that, yeah. right? Like for example, in a story coming out this week on Sarah Lineberger of Hand and Rose, we mentioned how she was able to fix up her truck with the help of her dad. And that is a kind of circumstance as well, that she happened to have a dad yeah. who could help her in that way. And other people might just not have had that circumstance. Like, so that's one small way. And then the other application I have is, I, I do think we've talked about this a lot about where making is headed, but we want to make sure that what we provide in terms of writing and community and events is available to people 
in circumstances that are not as fortunate. I think that's important to yeah. us. I think that is acknowledging luck in a way that is real, not just, I mean, it's important, like you're saying, to change our mindsets, how we think about people, but also applying that in the product that we're actually working on, like in yeah. our day-to-day business. Yeah. Question, do you think that understanding luck means that we become okay with mediocrity? Because it's not that they suggest that you cannot rise above circumstance. It's just hard because like you need to move from system one to system two, right? You want to learn how to like, I don't know, learn a new skill, then that's moving into system two. So that after the fact, after, you know, the age of 18, whenever you're an adult, now back in your control to change or better your current situation. Now, if I understand luck and I look at somebody, I'm like, oh, luck is the reason why that person has a bad temper and they don't deal well with stress. What does that mean? That's a really challenging question. What's your What's your initial reaction to that? My initial reaction is no. That doesn't mean that you become more accepting for mediocrity. I think there is forgiveness in exceptional circumstances, but because I was thinking about it, like I wouldn't hire a editor or photographer that I didn't think was good for a story because I am forgiving towards their circumstances. Even though I might be sympathetic, I'm not going to make that decision. That's not a good decision for what I'm doing. So it's more like, I guess in many ways, it's if you understand it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to drop everything for the equalization or I don't even like whenever it comes to things that discuss equalization, I'm always unsure of like the unpacking of the different viewpoints. Maybe it's thinking about, I'm not saying I have this fix all answer, but maybe it's thinking about what helps more people or what brings good to a greater amount of people. If I give the not so good writer an assignment and I publish it, who does that help? Nobody. It's reputational damage across the board. Maybe the story has less impact too, because I cho- I made that decision in that assignment. And does it really help that writer, even though I'm sympathetic to their circumstance by publishing their work the way it is? That's a hard question. Like that's a hard repeating question that you would have to constantly be evaluating in different circumstances. In closing, my point of view to that is... In general, it it does allow for things to be a little more lax. I think there has to be some sort of middle ground there between knowing that at some point in time you do control your own destiny. However, obviously there are certain circumstances that make your life more challenging. I think one way it should change the way we behave is the way we talk about people. An example of that? Like the person who is repeatedly late, that might change my decision in terms of their work and responsibilities, but I wouldn't feel comfortable going around being like, ah, Eugene, he's such a dick. He's just always late ruining other people's schedules. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because that might not be true. I might still take action to prevent the repercussions of you being late. Sorry, this is hypothetical. I'm not calling you out, but I, I don't want to talk about you in that negative way. Mm-hmm. How's that? Yeah. You look so somber. No, I mean, it's thinking. You got like the serious thinking face on. <sighs> Next one. <laughs> Moving on. 
you actually picked this subject and then I swiped it. it. I swiped it from you. But I do find it genuinely very interesting. My subject today was one that you originally picked and then I swiped I from you. I was deliberating over this or that. Yeah, and then I hadn't actually picked mine yet. So, And I liked yours. It's from the NPR Code Switch program slash publication. So I listened to Code Switch, the podcast, quite a lot. And I was really happy that you t- share this article with me. And I don't tend to read their essays, but like in between episodes, I think they release writing. And the essay talks about where the word mm-hmm comes from. It's funny because mm-hmm is like a weird audio word to be talking about. The article goes in to say that mm-hmm is controversially most likely coming from African language. And the controversy reveals a lot about bias because there are linguists and historians who say, you know, it could be from English language, it could be from African language, we can't really decide. And the reason they can't really decide is because there is this historical bias against African American language and African language in general, looking down on it as quote unquote inferior. And that has repercussions even to the t- today in how we speak and how we perceive of other people's speech. So to talk a little bit more about mm-hmm, it is suggested that it came from uh, enslaved Africans who spoke their own language and then because of the slave trade wound up in the States. So it entered Southern black vernacular and then Southern white vernacular and other examples of Words similar to this are banjo and okra. Mm. There for all the linguist nerds out there. And also, was oh, the just peanut lost one? It. Yeah, goober. Goober. Yeah. Which is not a word I've ever used. Oh, also one that you mentioned when you were telling me about this article is double negatives. Yeah. So the phrase, you ain't got nothing, comes from African speech patterns. They say it's from African speech. Some people say that it comes from African speech patterns. However... However, there's not really consensus because of what I said about controversy. Yeah. About... Because they said that it was used in Old English. Yeah. Prior. Yeah. But it's also just, it reads to me like historians and linguists are still dealing with accepting that non-English languages have affected the English language. I'm generalizing because obviously like not all linguists and not all historians, but there seems to be a unwillingness to talk frankly about how the English language has morphed. Yeah, Yeah. has developed because it's not, this this sounds like such this ancient thing to say, but it's not this pure language. It's a hybrid and people don't really seem to face up to that. Yeah, I do find it interesting. The reason why I've generally gravitated towards audio-based topics or voice, whatever language-based topics is like a culmination of the future of audio as we know it. And just in terms of more audio content, the cultural nuances of language as this sort of wraps itself around. And is there a third one? I guess just generally like a, a fascination with communication. But, you know, this made me think of an article that uh, Nate sent me and it was talking about how within a very quick span of, I want to say seven seconds, you can figure out someone's socioeconomic background from from just listening to them speak. So I always thought that was interesting. Yeah, actually this 
this article reminds me of some other topics. And one of them is, funnily enough, another Code Switch episode about this. What's Code Switch for people that aren't familiar? You've brought up Code Switch before and I didn't even know this was a Code Switch piece. I knew it was NPR, but I didn't know it was Code Switch. Code Switch, according to their own description, is... We're a team of journalists fascinated by the overlapping themes of race, ethnicity, and culture, how they play out in our lives and communities, and how all of this is shifting. And I know we have like a lot of pans in the fire right now, but code switching is also when a person behaves differently with different audiences. Oh, yeah. So hypothetically, as me, as someone who's Asian, I would choose or subconsciously behave differently with my grandparents versus with my white friends, versus with my Asian American friends. So we all subconsciously change the way we behave or speak with different groups of people. A lot of it based off of racial assumptions that we make, whether lived out in reality or things that are in our heads. So what I wanted to speak about in relation to this language article that was another Code Switch episode was about accents. So this episode was about this black man who wanted to be a newscaster, like a on TV newscaster, and he's from Baltimore. And so he has this Baltimore accent. And every news agency that he interviewed with said, you're great, we love you, but you need to work on your accent to fix it. And then the episode talks about how it turns out all newscasters have this standard English accent that originally comes from Cleveland, Ohio. And it was just, yeah, it's super interesting. I'll send it to you. But it's just that Cleveland has like a non-accent. And this episode was so interesting to me. This ties into yours, actually, because I was thinking about how lucky I am to... Have a neutral accent. Yes. By the fate of the way I grew up, I have... I just know this about the way I speak, is that I have this neutral, slightly American, but not overly American way of speaking. And I have a neutral mixed vocabulary. Yeah. And I've, I never confronted this before until we started doing podcasting and audio stories. And I don't know what to do with that. Like I just, I'm just grateful. Become a newscaster. I'm grateful for the fact that I speak the way I do. To that point, people are like, oh, you're from Canada, aren't you? Because I have a bit of an accent. Especially when you get intense. Do I? Mm-hmm. Define intense. Like when you lose at FIFA. Oh, wait. How would you know what a Canadian would say in that context of losing No, no, no. Swearing? It's not what you're saying, but the way your accent comes out stronger. <laughs> it really does. I forget uh, what it was you said the other day. But yeah. I usually say, are you effing kidding me? I do say that a lot. But it was something with an O-U sound in it or like an O-A sound in it. <laughs> Well then. But it's interesting because language and speech, while we can work on that, it is it does fall, I think, under inheritance, under things that are not can't really control it. At least like, not I, when I you know, started. I know like you I'm sure you know siblings in Hong Kong where both siblings have different accents. Yeah. Like that's not exactly rare. That's pretty normal because like, oh, you grew up in Australia for this part of your life or you hung out with those people and then you moved away and then yada, yada, yada. So. I think that's also really hard to disentangle from your mind when you're perceiving people. 
I think it's hard to pretend like we don't hear the way they speak in terms of accents or word choice. Mm -hmm. How do you think about people that speak English as a second language and when, whether they're grammatically incorrect or whatnot? I would say personally, I've gotten really good at, I mean, it's not good. It's just like more aware of the fact that in many ways, like I think that that's incredibly challenging to like pick up a, a challenging language like English and be able to communicate in a way, at least you can get the message across. Right. So I think maybe in the past I'd be like, Oh, this person can't speak English very well. That was when I was younger. Now it's like, Oh, you know what? Like actually it's really challenging and it, it kind of forces you to almost understand them better or change your mindset a little bit. And that's another thing too, is that like, it is a kind of code switch as well. It's like a, a reverse code switch of how you talk to. It's like when Alex tries to speak to a cab driver, right? And he changes the way he communicates too. Yeah. Oh, well, you called me out the other... Well, not call me out, but you commented the other day when we were in a cab and you said that I speak to the taxi driver very differently yeah. from when I speak to you. Yeah. And in Cantonese versus in English. Yeah. I'm thinking about the way I speak to English as a second language people... I don't feel that I have negative biases, but I definitely simplify the way I speak. If anything, I switch it around a little bit where I feel like you should be more encouraging mm. and let them know. Cause that's the one thing that some, some people just, you know, if they're getting frustrated or whatnot, then, and you show frustration, then I think you're just pushing people apart, right? I'm also just thinking about the way I met one of Edward KB's friends who turned out to have listened to Making It Up and had not Googled me. I'm not saying people need to Google me, but he had not Googled me. And then he met me and he said, oh, when I listened to Making It Up, I never was able to figure out what ethnicity you are. Hmm. Just such a strange thing to think about myself. I have, I don't, I'm not going anywhere with this. It's just like, oh, I guess it's luck to go back to the idea is that I've been fortunate enough. To be a linguistic chameleon. Yes. No one knows what you so are. So I'm not giving away my yeah. history the yeah. way the man from Baltimore is. He, yeah, yeah, is. Weird how they were related, our two subjects. They always find a way. Always happens. We don't plan this, guys. Not good enough for that. Good place to wind things up? Yes. If you are interested in learning more about Macon, reading and listening to our stories that are focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>